Amen. Well, please remain standing and uh, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Before I read the first 11 verses of the chapter, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us in the preaching of the gospel. Let's pray. Our blessed Lord, as we come now to the solemn preaching of your word, we ask for enlightenment. And we pray, O Lord, that you would give us all that we need to embrace and understand the message from this text of Isaiah. Lord, we all long for comfort and joy. It's our prayer that you would show us, Lord, the foundation of that comfort and joy and that we would embrace it, accept it, and Lord, delight in it. We pray it in Christ's holy name, amen. Beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 40. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. And when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. And thus ends the reading of this text. You may be seated. I don't know about you this morning, but I personally am a fan of having opportunities seasonally to focus upon concentrated passages of scripture and doctrine. I have no problem and I take no issue with the nation, at least in essence, wanting to celebrate nationally the birth of the Savior of all men. I think it is a good thing. I think it is honorable. And as Christians, we should be ready to celebrate all those things that are honorable 
and good. Well, how do we celebrate and what are we to think about these moments we have and opportunities to be a sight, salt, and light to the world around us? Well, it must certainly rest upon the very gospel itself because the gospel is called the good news. It's the message that the Bible says ought to be, should be, and is commanded to be herald to all men, and we should preach it. That's what the text I just read in your hearing commands us to do, preach the gospel. And before I open up those verses, I think it's important to remind ourselves that we do not live in a vacuum. This is not an environment where we are disconnected from our social, political, uh, national problems and sins. Like Israel and Judah in the 39 previous chapters, woe and lamentation was pronounced on them by God. Why? Why did Isaiah write 39 chapters of woe and lamentation to the people of God? Well, there are, I think, three basic reasons, or at least I want to explain it and set it before you in three ways in order to enhance the message that I have this morning Well, the first reason is they simply rejected God as their God. They were in covenant with God. And though they would gather and worship him during their Sabbaths, and they would perform outwardly these cultic rituals that they were commanded to do in the ceremonial law, their hearts were not with him. They had rejected him. They longed for the gods of the nations. They were guilty of rank idolatry. They were no longer thrilled, amused, nor delighted in Yahweh, in Jehovah God, the God who was their deliverer the God who had revealed himself in power and glory to their ancestors. They no longer wanted him. They wanted the novelty, the gods of the nations. They wanted the novelty. They wanted the glamour. They wanted the glitz. They wanted the fulfillment of their lust. They wanted the God that would okay and sign off on all of their emotions. There's another failure Not only did they reject him and did so by not really being part wholeheartedly in their worship, but they denied his power. By rejecting him, you can see the connection to each each point, but they denied his power. He was no longer the God that could deliver them from themselves. They saw other gods for their deliverance and joy and comfort. He was no longer a God that could come powerfully and comfort them in their distresses and sorrows, in their difficulties. No, they looked to these other 
false gods for their comfort and joy, and thus by doing so, they had denied his power. Lastly, beloved, they despised his care. They despised his providential care. They despised the way that God had ordered their worship, their lives, their nation. And they didn't want it. They didn't like all of the gatherings. They did not want to come at at the appointed times to sacrifice and worship him. They despised his shepherding over them. And this is important as we look at the text and as we look at these failures, we see three areas that these failures showed up in. And it's the same way with our nation today and the church. The three institutions that not only grew cold but corrupt to the core was their politics, their worship, and their homes. Brothers and sisters, a nation has little to no hope when the state and its politicians and its those that are elected to do good on behalf of the citizens of that nation, when they become so sorely corrupt and polluted and can't be trusted, they become a curse to the people. And that's why the scriptures even say that as a nation grows wicked, the citizens of that nation groan under that wickedness, that leadership. But it wasn't just the state. The church was corrupt. And we can go back, and I'm not going to rehearse all of the various passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah that address the prophets and the priests, their immorality, their greediness, their abuse of power, using their positions for personal gain, They were, if you will, like Jude wrote about in these false prophets. They were like clouds without rain. God's people, even the ones that were sincere, could not go and be ministered to. They couldn't go and find the hope and the the strength of faith that they sought after, that they desperately needed to live in those dark times. They couldn't find it in those places because the word of God had been abandoned. And it was all about the word of men, the tickling of ears, the preaching of the things that people wanted to hear, the things that filled up, if you will, the worship services. It wasn't about the truth. It wasn't about the glory of God. It wasn't about the doctrine of salvation. All of that had been laid aside. It wasn't popular. It had become offensive to the majority of the people. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
the UK is entertaining and coming out with stipulations and guidelines about open air preaching and the opening of the reading of the Bible in public because the Muslims find it offensive. That's coming here, by the way. At least, but certainly not less important is the home. The corruption of relationships, the marriage relationship, husbands and wives with each other, parents and children have grown severely corrupted and polluted. Religion was no longer something valued and precious and important to the next generation. It was all about the day, the emotion. It's all about what others are doing. It's about the popularity of certain ideas, philosophies, and gods. And certainly we want to be, well, in the in crowd. The children did not honor their parents. They usually grew up despising and hating them. And the parents hardly being a parent. I, and I would say this as I thought about the message. And, of course, the title of the message is Comfort and Joy. You say, well, you're, you're starting off poorly. But wait a minute, we're going to get there. There's answers to this, and that's where chapter 40 comes in. But listen, listen to me. Just as this nation had no future in their sins, neither does ours. How can you despise life and commit to the murder of millions of unborn children and expect that nation to have a future? How can you murder generations and expect to have a future, beloved? How? How can you just continue to commit genocide and expect that nation to possess a rich, valuable future and of course as we preached brother john years ago we've been preaching this message as we preach as 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 this gains acceptance among the professing believers among the church members we knew it was going to move into euthanasia. We knew it was going to move into just making the decision that I'm ready to end it and I can call the hotline and tell them, look, I am sick, I'm tired, I'm ready to die. Don't worry, make an appointment next Tuesday at 9 o'clock. We'll send a staff over there and we'll help you with that. And Canada is largely doing this. Because we hate, we openly hate God. We reject him, therefore denying his power, therefore despising his care over us. We have brought to ourselves 
despair and anxiety. The opposite of comfort and joy. But the message that God has for his people and for us this morning is that there is comfort and joy in him. Despite the idolatry, despite the the God hatred, despite the the hating of all that is good, despite all of the the, the longing, the, the begging and the seeking of all of these false gods and damnable heresies and philosophies, God calls out to Isaiah in verse one and two and he commands him to go comfort his people. Look with me at these first two verses. This is what we see. We see that that despite their sin, despite their corruption, God is a great faithful God. And in chapter 40, there is a turning in the book of Isaiah to the very end of the book, this the the remaining 27 chapters, but in this verse, there is a turning from the anger of God now to this provision, this comfort that God alone can provide. And it says in verse one, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Now, there are several things happening in these first two verses. There's a lot of literary devices being employed here. The first literary device we see is in those two words, comfort, comfort my people. Now, it's, we, we see the implication. The implication is herald that, preach that, announce to my people comfort. Well, they're not comfortable. They're miserable. The family's destroyed. The church is compromised and the state is just, putrid and God says comfort comfort my people that is instead of using the logical reasonable the implied word which is preach announce or proclaim he uses the very word that he is desiring to bestow upon them which is comfort That's a Hebrew literary device. It's the emphasis. It demonstrates that this is the goal of the heralding, of the preaching, of the announcing. It's the goal. The goal of this preaching, the sending out my ministers, is to preach the gospel so that my people might be truly, really comforted. Amen. I promise you, beloved, there's not a person, there's not a soul here under the sound of my voice that doesn't want comfort, that doesn't want joy. And the question is, where will we find it? Where do we seek it? Notice, not only does he emphasize this comfort of his people, He says, speak kindly or to the heart, to Jerusalem. Now we see there, my people, and speak to the heart. That is, is this gospel, this message, 
is going to be to the very soul of the individual. That's what it means to, it, I, I don't like the NASB translation of it because they, they put it to speak kindly. I, I like the new King James or the King James speak to the heart. It's to speak to the very core of the person. It's to reach the person where they are, both intellectually and emotionally. Both must be dealt with. Both must be corrected. And most must, both must be brought upon the, the sovereign authority of Christ the King. All under God. You can't, beloved, be a the true disciple of God and have your emotions running wild over here and thinking, well, I have my mind filled with all of these truths and doctrines. I'm okay. You're not okay. God speaks to the heart of the person. God speaks to the whole man by speaking to the heart. And by speaking to the whole man, he addresses you intellectually and emotionally. These are not psychological tricks or intellectual games. This is the word of God, the gospel of God. This is the word going forth from Isaiah, from God to Isaiah, from Isaiah to the church. This is the message of comfort and joy. This is your comfort. Call out to her, he says in verse 2, that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. What is he talking about, this warfare? Well, obviously, Israel, Judah, I mean, they had known skirmishes and conflicts, and they were, they were not at peace. Well, they were not at peace with their neighbors. They were not at peace with God. But there is a spiritual connection that we need to make here. What is this warfare? What is this comfort that's being heralded? What, what is this joy that we need to consider? It's this warfare. Beloved, the question is, are you at peace with God? The warfare that takes place in the, in the heart, in the mind of every unbeliever. Why? Because the Bible tells us in John 3 that the wrath of God abides on them, on all of them, whether they sit in church or not. Whether they have a long heritage of preachers and elders and deacons in their family, a long heritage of professing believers, if they are under the, 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 the darkness of unbelief, the wrath of God abides on them and they're at war with God. But in this message that God has for his people, he says in the past tense, this prophetic announcement that there is coming the day when this warfare will cease. You'll no longer be at war. You're no longer going to be at war. I'm going to do something about it. And beloved, we should all know by now sitting in churches like this one, that there is nothing you can do to remedy your own condition. I mean, you can change outward habits. Good. That's a good thing. 
but you cannot wash your own souls. You cannot wash your own hearts and conscience, and you cannot alone by yourself, well, bring peace between you and God. Every sinner is at war with God. How we all act like Adam and Eve, we hide from him. Christ comes as that mediator, that go-between, and he, it's in him that we have this peace. And so now we come joyfully to our Father, even this morning as we gather to worship him, as we prayed, as we sanctified ourselves, as we sanctified this time to worship and adore him. We have peace with God through Christ and it's accepted. He wants us to come into his presence. We've been rowed in that pure righteousness of Christ and we're accepted on behalf of that. This warfare is that war of the soul, the darkened, dead, unbelieving soul to God. And God has announced through the prophet, hey, it is coming to an end that her iniquity has been removed. I'm going to take away the offense. You see, beloved, you can't have the comfort and joy that Isaiah is called to announce and proclaim. You can't have this comfort and joy. And remain in your sins. Remain in your rebellion. Remaining in your hatred for God. Despising his shepherding, his care. Longing for the movies and, and the Disney life out there where there's no recompense. There's no consequence to any of your sexual preferences, your actions, or anything like that, that doesn't, that world doesn't exist. It's fantasy. And the world continues, that philosophy continues to destroy lives every day. Why? Largely because the church is silent. Largely because the church isn't preaching this message of comfort and joy. When people think that they change their sex, they're going to somehow make themselves happy. You know what they find out? And there's a whole movement, and the media is silenced this movement, but there's a whole movement that says, I was wrong. God, forgive me. I thought that if I went through all of this surgery and I took all of these drugs, I thought if I could change the way I looked, I thought if I could change the way I saw myself, that I would be different, and I'm not. They bought the lie. They bought the lie of the false gods of this world of comfort and joy. And what they got was sorrow and misery compounded times a hundred maybe a thousand, maybe a million. Oh, I've read the articles and they're heartbreaking of people that said, oh, I have destroyed myself. We should be weeping. That's a gospel that's being preached. That's the gospel that our state is advocating. That's the gospel that the media is promoting. That's the gospel that Hollywood is promoting and false churches.
The iniquity has been removed. The end of verse 2, in that she has received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. And there's some controversy and debate on whether or not this is double for her sins. It possibly could refer to like the crime of theft where if you rob someone of $10, you should pay back double that $10. That could be the case. That they had robbed God of his glory and therefore had to pay double and were going to pay double. However, it can also refer to by the word and the uses of the word in the Old Testament itself is that they have received double grace for their sin. Here's the picture. The picture is where sin is grace abounds. It could be that God in Isaiah is saying to, your, to his people, right, and to the church and to us this morning that, that you, you deserve much more than what you're getting. But I am a gracious God, and I'm going to deliver you, and I am going to give you comfort and joy in the salvation that I have in my hands that I offer to you in my son, Jesus. Three things by way of application that I want to leave you with this morning. And, and, and there's a number of ways we could divide up this text. But I think there are really three things that we need to bring uh, that I need, uh, that I want to bring to your mind and to your heart, uh, preach to your heart this morning. And those three things are his presence, his power, and his providence. See, these things that I am going to draw out from the text this morning are those things that Israel needed to repent of, rejecting him, number one. His presence. Number two, denying his power. In this case, preaching and understanding the power of God in his word, in the gospel, and of course, despising his care over us. And we'd say sanctification. That is his providence, how God cares for you, how God holds on to you, how God sanctifies you, how he puts hedges and fences and barriers up around you that, that yes, he has saved you and he is saving you and he's going to save you and he's going to use all of these means to get you there. And we need to be very careful, beloved, that we do not despise the shepherding of our Savior. Now, these are things they needed to repent of. This is the message. This is the announcement. This is the gospel. These are the things the prophet is declaring. These are the things that the church needed to repent of and embrace the truth. We must first begin with that repentance, don't we? Shouldn't we? We must acknowledge where we have failed. We must acknowledge where we have denied, where we have been rebellious, and we must then confess and believe the truth. Believe the truth. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 and 5 is the point I want to make about his presence. 
A voice, Isaiah says, is what? Calling, crying out. Your translation may say crying. It's this impassioned heralding of this message. What is the message? Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the it makes smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Let me stop there at verse 3 because most of you probably have already recognized that this is, well, the text that John the Baptist quoted for himself. This is the application. This is why Handel, in writing his work, The Messiah, started with this text. John the Baptist says, I am the voice calling out in the wilderness. I am the one making straight the way of the Lord. I'm the one that's proclaiming the day of the Lord. I'm the one announcing his coming. Beloved, the presence of God and the presence of God in his son, Jesus Christ, is our hope and comfort. It's our comfort. What would this worship service be without his presence? It'd be be vanity. We'd be a club. We could be like the YMCA or the Elks Lodge or the Moose Lodge. It'd just be a gathering of people. But when God comes in great visitation, it becomes a worship service where he is exalted, where he's here, beloved, by his spirit, by the truth of his word. Why? We honor him by honoring his word. We honor him by honoring the the way he's shaping and molding and handling our lives. We honor him by, by recognizing that my mind is broken. My mind needs fixing. My mind needs to be filled with truth and I need to reject those things that are wrong and inaccurate and I need to embrace those things that are true before God. about myself about the world that I live in and about my God make way this comfort and joy beloved doesn't come by our efforts it comes by the Lord coming to us (laughs) praise God where would our parents, our first parents be in the garden if God had not come to them. We'd be lost. We would be in darkness. We'd be totally given over to ourselves. Notice in verse 4, he speaks of these obstacles, right? Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. What is he speaking of here? Well, he's speaking of that when the Lord comes, what's going to happen? He says, listen, all of the low places will be made level. All of the high places will be made level. And the Lord will come. He will sort all of this out. And he will contend and deal with these obstacles. 
He'll make everything even and level. Easy. You know what the Lord's ministers ought to be doing is making it easy for people to come to Christ? Easy. How? Well, first of all, preaching the truth, preaching it clearly and plainly, you don't need entertainment to do that. You don't have to have a lot of money to do that. You don't have to have a lot of bells and whistles to do that, to be committed to that. And, and then you, you, you tear down the idols of the world, of the nations, right? You speak to the, to the, the false gods of this age, right? The zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And I just mentioned a couple earlier, didn't I? What do you tell people? You tell people that they can seek after these gods, but they will only bring more misery and sorrow into their lives. You speak the truth in love. You tell them their only hope and comfort is found in Jesus Christ. He he is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. That's his name. Amen. And he comes to do what? He comes to level it all out. He comes to deal with the obstacles. He comes to set the record straight. He comes to tell the truth. I am the truth, Jesus said, the way and the life. One of the greatest things the church, or one of the great duties of the church is to pull down the strongholds of the age. These false gods All in the power and the name of Christ who is present with us. Lo, Jesus said, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Do we believe that? Do we trust in that? Do the ministers of the gospel, this is what he's saying. Hey, comfort, oh, comfort my people, says the Lord. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Isaiah, but it's a plural verb, y'all Comfort my people. All of these ministers, all of these prophets, all of these one who've been commissioned and ordained to herald this gospel. You bring comfort and joy to my people. You speak of these things. You declare these truths. You announce my presence. Oh, God is here. He is here. You know, it's... You find the popularity of open rebellion to God is popular. You know, if some TV personality or some, some uh, 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 what do you call them now, influencer, social media influencer, the popularity of denouncing God, the popularity of calling wrath down on themselves and saying, see, I told you, he doesn't exist. Mark my words. As a minister of the gospel, as someone who knows something about the Bible, I truly believe on judgment day, the Lord will say, Here's what happened to that conscience. 
Here's what happened to that life. Here's what happened to that soul. You never saw it. But they destroyed themselves when they did that. The Bible tells us that those who mock God are not free. There's a price to be paid. Brothers and sisters, I want to say this and say it as earnestly and compassionately and as, as, as gentle as I possibly can. Because that's the tenor, that's the, the language itself lends itself. That This is sweet words coming from, from Jehovah to a people that don't deserve the sweet words. That's us. But here's the words. The words is, I am coming. And now we look back, we look back and we say, he has come. Jesus has come. He has been announced. He has made the high mountains low and the valleys level. He has done this. He has fulfilled and given us the whole counsel of his word. He has commissioned his apostles. He has finished the writing of the revelation of God as it concerns man's salvation. He has given us these tools in order the Spirit of God to pull down these strongholds and to preach and announce comfort and joy to the whole world. Are we going to do it? Are we doing it? If not, why not? What are we waiting for? In verse 5, he says, And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, and the mouth of the Lord is spoken. What is this glory? I believe it's the revelation of doctrine. Christ came, and what did he do? He told his disciples, he said, Teach my disciples as I have taught you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you to the very end of the age as you do this. This glory, this weight that Christ possesses, beloved, is seen in the doctrine of the Word of God. Now, why is that a needed application? Because there is an audacity among many professing believers to say, I'm not worried about doctrine. I don't like doctrine. I don't want a church that preaches doctrine. I don't want to sit in a schoolroom. I want to sit in a concert. I want to be pumped up. I want to get that shot of emotional, of an emotional high so that Monday I'm looking around and going, man, I can't wait for Sunday again because I'm already low. Beloved, it's this doctrine, this truth that Jesus come to give his church so that we might hold to it by holding to that doctrine. We hold on to him by the presence of the doctrine and the love of it and the, the meaning and the person behind it. We love him 
Beloved, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every church that preaches doctrine is a church that's alive. We know better than that. Ephesus was a, an example of what it is to love doctrine, but not Christ. But we need to understand that first proclamation right there under verse, oh, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert of a highway for our God. Why, he's coming to us. Listen, why do we want to know the truth? Because we want to know God. Do you want to go to heaven solely because you want to escape hell? Or do you want to go to heaven because that's where your God is and you want to be with your God? Number two, his power. Verse 6, 7 and 8. Voice calls out, or a voice call, a voice says, Call out, cry out. And then he answered, What shall I call out? Well, here's the message all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field, and the grass withers and the flower fades. And when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What is this message? This is the message of power. Power. God can breathe upon this nation and it's gone. You are, it goes back to what Isaiah says toward the end of the chapter where he talks about the nations are like the dust. You know what you do with dust? You wipe it off. You just wipe it off. You can blow it off. The church and the God as it's... Pr- Presence is its power. Things happen because of the power of God. Things happen because of the honor and glory of God. And he's exercising his power. You're changed because the power of God. You're sustained because the power of God. He holds on to you. He continues to hold on to his church in the midst of a dark nation, in the midst of a nation that's getting even darker. God has the power to just blow it all away if he wants to. The word of God stands forever. Jesus said it this way on the Sermon on the Mount, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word is forever. The word of God is eternal. The word of God, I mean, is like God. God's eternal, therefore his word is eternal. To reject his word is to reject him. Right? To deny the word of God is to deny God, is to deny the power of God. To deny the word of God is to deny the power of the gospel. We look to everything else to give us comfort but the Bible, but the word of God, the one that has the power. And he says, oh, we are like grass. Look how fragile we are. All flesh is grass and the grass withers I mean we all know the season of grass and flowers that's us 
That's us. But the word of God is forever. It's eternal. And those who possess it, those who have it etched upon their hearts, those who have put it in their minds, those who love it, and therefore love God, they too shall be forever in his presence. This is the victory, beloved. This is the power. This is the power over life itself. This is when we take our last breath, we are ushered into a new realm, a new dimension, the dimension of heaven and glory and inheritance in Christ, where we too then live forever before the face of God and be reminded constantly of the power of our God in his word, his word. He speaks. What do we see? The Bible opened up with this doctrine. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did God create the heavens and the earth? He spoke it into existence. I have to tell you this. It's a little, it's some comedy. I was watching this interview of a, college football coach that has passed away this past week and they were showing some of his rememberable media moments and guess one of them was related to the power of God believe it or not and they asked him that he really believed in creator he said well sure he said you you know and they asked him well that surely takes a lot of faith he said well I mean I, I don't think it takes as much faith as, you know, lightning striking mud and somehow it gets up and walks. Well, they didn't have anything to say after that. Next question, please. The power of God. Why are we embarrassed of the power of God? Why has the church abandoned God as creator? Why has the church given over that doctrine? Because they denied his power. They've denied it. He uses the means some spiritual Christians, pastors, theologians, seminarians, really uses his power, the power of evolution. That didn't bring God glory. God spoke it and it happened. This power, beloved, is related to the comfort and joy promised in the heralding of the gospel. This is what you and I are looking for right now. We want that comfort and joy, and we know that the only place we can have it, the very found, or the essence of it, or the, the place that you open the cabinet and look for it is in the gospel, the heralding of God's ministers of these doctrines and these truths. They preach Christ. And without Christ, there is no comfort and joy. (laughs) There's not. And I enjoy walking around and hearing that hymn. I enjoy walking around and watching the world hum and sing the very songs that speak of the glory and the comfort and joy that only comes in Christ. The third application is his providence 
his providence seen in verse 9 and following. He says, get yourself up on a high mountain. O Zion, that's the church, bearer of good news. Who's the custodians of this gospel? The church is. They are to preach this gospel. Lift up your voice mightily. Let it be heard. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, lift it up. Do not fear. Do not be afraid of these enemies of the gospel. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, that's the problem, isn't it? That's the, that's the remedy of the idolatry. Do you even know who God is? How many Christians don't even, professing Christians, don't even read their Bibles? They don't even know who God is. They don't read the revelation. They don't read where God has revealed himself, where God has showed himself. They don't read it. Therefore, they don't know him because they don't know the word. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him. Now, let me stop and say, what reward is he talking about? He's not talking about our reward our heavenly inheritance. He's not talking about the reward of comfort and joy. He's talking about the Savior's reward. What's the Savior's reward? The nations as his inheritance. A people who trust and put their faith in him and are now God's sons and daughters. That's the people. That's the reward. Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. You look around you, you can look, all of the clamoring, all of the groping, all of the arguing, who owns the UK now? Who owns America? Does it belong to the Christians? Does it belong to the Muslims? Does it belong to the Hindus? Does it belong to the homosexual? Who does it belong to? The pagans. Well, it belongs to Jesus. And he can just breathe out and Wipe it all away if he wants to. Our comfort and joy, beloved, is in the power of this shepherd king. Verse 11. Notice, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him like a shepherd. He will tend his flock and his arm. He will gather the lambs. He will carry them in his bosom and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. I mean, I know you can probably see the envision the parables that we've been going through, but beloved, listen, in God's providence, his care for you. He carries you. With what? His powerful arm. His power. His presence. His circumstances. His providence. He hems you up, he boxes you in, and he guides you, and he leads you, and he brings you to that great inheritance of comfort and joy eternally. We only have it now in part, don't we, beloved? Don't we? And I think that's why we like seasons like this. It allows us to sort of think of it more and to dwell on it more. And whatever the case may be, I'm for singing these great hymns all year, which we did in the church, my last church. We didn't technically have Christmas hymns. We had gospel hymns and Christ-centered hymns. 
but it allows us to concentrate and to focus and to consider how our God carries us along the way. You see, he started as what? He started in the womb of a virgin. The immediately born into this world, he was in danger. And God took care of him, his son. He takes care of you. And he will finish what he has begun in you. And he will bring your salvation to complete this gospel, this promise, this heralding. Comfort, oh, comfort my people. Fill them with comfort and joy. Why? Because their sins have been forgiven. And like a shepherd is with his lamb, so your Savior is with you. And if he needs be, he will pick you up and he will gently bring you to that heavenly inheritance. And I would say this to the young people too. The challenges, the temptations, the opportunity that you have to reject Christ and to follow after the vain philosophies of this world and these false gods is enormous. There's cheerleaders on every corner applauding your departure from the true and living God. And you must, with courage and boldness, say, no. No. My comfort and joy is the God of Jesus Christ. My comfort and joy is the God who could breathe and all this would be over. My comfort and joy is the power of the one who can make low the mountains and to make high the valleys. My God is the one that can take me and bring me to that everlasting inheritance. Let's pray. And Father, we've only begun to scratch the surface of this text, but yet we have found great encouragement by its teaching, by its truth. Oh, Lord, let our hearts rest upon that comfort and joy that we have with your presence in Christ, your power in Christ, and your providence in Christ. Oh, how he is our king, our prophet, and our priest, seated at your right hand, taking care of your church and every one of us. And I pray, O oh Lord, for every saint here, every older saint, O oh Lord, comfort them. Comfort them. Lord, allow them to rest in you, Lord, from a long life of service, a long life of trust. Lord, let them be greatly rewarded in mind and heart and soul by this message. And I pray, O oh Lord, for those of middle age, Lord, who may be weary in these things, but Lord, there's a ways to go. Give them strength. Hold on to them. Continue, O oh Lord, to hold on to them and lead them along the way as a shepherd does the sheep. Lord, I pray for the young ones here, the young adults. Oh, Lord, protect them, the heart and minds, from the lies of the evil one, from these false gospels of these false saviors and these false gods. Lord, 
put, as it were, a shield up to their eyes and their ears that they would not even see or hear these lies. Constrain their hearts, O God, to that comfort and joy that's only found in you. Lord, give them peace even now in the midst of a world that's upside down and restless. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.